the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Get it going right here, right now. This is New Generation Declassified, and you're listening to an all-new New Generation Declassified here exclusively on the TMPT Podcasting Empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week we go back in time, and we go back and look at the uh, the finer days, as I like to say, of the, uh, the World Wrestling Federation era-ish, the mid-90s. They called it the New Generation. We called it life, and we're going to talk about it today as I'm joined by... Uh, Fascinating, fascinating guest. Uh, I know him now as the coach, uh, Mr. Mike Hollow, uh, joining me tonight. Mike, it has been great to get to know you over the last few weeks, and thanks for coming on the podcast tonight. Chad, thanks for having me on. Uh, should be excited to talk about all the different things that went on during that time period. It's fascinating. You know, we talked to Brendan Higgins, a good friend of yours, a couple weeks ago, Knuckles Nelson, uh, talking about New England, talking about the New England wrestling scene in the mid-90s and what it was like cutting your teeth and coming up during that time. But we'll get to that with you in, in a few minutes. You've got a great story. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking about it. Uh, Hollow's Stable is your current training facility. Now, for those of you that don't know about Mike and his background, He's trained superstars like Kofi Kingston, Damian Sandow, Darren Young, Tommaso Ciampa, Biff Busick, and so many more. Um, but Hollow Stable, tell us about that before we start talking about the old days. Well, it was an endeavor that I decided to get into from a training standpoint. Uh, you know, I was coaching and teaching at Killer Kowalski's for many years, and then I opened the Chaotic Training Center for, you know, I, I was part of that for 10 years. And then I took a little time off, you know, with family and so forth. And then I decided to get back and teach back into the, the teaching side of the wrestling business. And then I realized that, you know, one of the things when I had so many students at my school is that, you know, it's hard to get everybody with what they what they need when they come to class. So I really tried to structure it with where um, it was two to three people, four people, small groups. So I really could get into the weeds of, um, you know, the fine and nuances of teaching, you know, in the ring and out of the ring to, you know, create a better polished professional. Yeah, and I left off Todd Hansen on this list because if you go back in the TMPT archives, all the way back to 2015, Hansen talks about chaotic wrestling and, and his journey through there. And I want to focus on chaotic here, too, because you have had such an amazing uh, story of coming up. Uh, and a guest, of course, Mr. Uh, Walter Kowalski, Killer Kowalski, being able to learn under the learning tree of such a, a great individual, a guy who contributed so much to the wrestling business and also trained so many that have now given to the wrestling business. Uh, the Chaotic Training Center, a real breeding ground for a lot of these superstars that we're seeing today. Uh, what was it about Chaotic that made it so different and so influential on so many talents? I think, you know, for us, our motto is that, one, we wanted to have a working relationship with, you know, WWE, and uh, we really tried to gear our training uh, with what they were looking for, for their athletes. Um, so that really helped us. And, you know, the other part that was beneficial is that we were always in communication with them. So we had a real good 
understanding and insight um, of what, what their needs were and what they were looking from a training standpoint. And it just really gave us um, an extra boost, I should say, to really allow the students to have an upper hand from a training standpoint um, or, an ad, or an advantage with where, you know, so when they had an opportunity to go to TV or, you know, being looked at by Dr. Tom or some of the office people, um, you know, they were really able to shine through when that opportunity presented itself. So what did you take from Mr. Kowalski and bring it over into chaotic? Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting when you talk about Walter, you know, one of the things for me, if it wasn't for Walter, I wouldn't be able to do with what I do today. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's, you know, that always stuck with me or resonates with me as he, as he said, it's the ability, you know, give back. And, you know, I was very fortunate with Walter to give me an opportunity to teach at a school and, um, continue here it is, you know, 20 plus years later, and I'm still teaching students. And just really trying to, you know, take, you know, his insight, his thoughts, his beliefs, and just really try to, you know, put students to be in a, in a better place, you know, with their endeavors to become a professional wrestler. But, you know, even more so importantly, outside of the ring as well, to be, you know, a good person, being respectful and, you know, being, um, you know, in, in society with where, um, you, know, you know, you looked at in a good way. You know, it's funny just doing the research and, and looking up stuff on your career. I, I found it fascinating. I, I know uh, Walter died in late 2008. I didn't know he technically retired <laughs> only a few months before he passed away. So that was I just thought that was an interesting little thing. Walter kept going till the end there with the uh, <laughs> with not being able to hold that claw back. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, one of the funny things about Walter you know, for years he had this perception of, you know, people looked at him as this huge villain for 20 plus years. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. Me, my kids had an opportunity to know Walter from a personal side and uh, just a completely different person. And, you know, just a little funny story. He always wanted to be known as an angel. <laughs> I can't see that. <laughs> either, well, either could I, because I remember the first time back in early 1992, climbing the stairs to a school, I was ever so intimidated because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I can't imagine because I mean, even that's it, me first discovering wrestling at a young age and you hear the name killer Kowalski. When you see the picture, you have no choice, but to be scared to death, you know, and I know guys still that are afraid of Baron Von Raschke killer Kowalski. The first time I saw him, I thought that this was like a direct out of the comics supervillain, uh, but just an amazing, amazing uh, personality. So now you were able to attend the killer Kowalski school in, in Massachusetts, uh, when you decided you wanted to uh, get into wrestling, was it an automatic that that's where you wanted to go? Or was that really one of the only places you knew of based off of where you grew up? It was, um, it was the place to be. Uh, logistically, it was the next town over from where I lived. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, at that time, I had just come off the road with WWF as I, as I was working on the ring and production crew. And, um, you know, some of my friends there, you know, recommended Walter and so there it was. Um, that's how I ended up with Walter, and he gave me the great opportunity to, you know, become his trainer after a couple of years of, you know, us forming a relationship. Yes, it cannot be. Uh, even though we focus on the mid '90s here, we cannot not mention that you were, drove the Brother Love set around as a part of the WWF production crew. Now, you know, I having worked in the production facility, I didn't get to travel to the shows and do this. 
but you were you were putting together the stages at, at one point and part of the WWF production. Yeah, uh, worked on the ring crew and all the big pay per views. The brother love set. My first job when I you know started working on the ring crew was to take the brother love set from Stanford, Connecticut, drive it all the way to California. They didn't want to put it. On, <laughs> they didn't want to put it on a plane. <laughs> Any reason why? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you didn't thing. ask those questions. <laughs> no, I didn't ask any questions. I just kept my head down and just did as I was told. <laughs> and also, I love too one of my favorite events of that era being a it, look. I started watching in '87, so anything between that '86 to like '89 is my absolute favorite wrestling on the planet. Uh, you drove the steel cage, or you set up the steel cage in WrestleFest 1988 in Milwaukee at County Stadium for Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. As a fan of that era, that's the coolest thing I think I could hear tonight. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was one of the other things, driving that. that, that so you drove it? I drove the cage, and then wow. uh, us and we ended up putting it together in the middle of the baseball field at, on home plate. <laughs> it's a great show. A lot of people don't really know it. You had to really grow up in that era to, to, to watch it. It was the, a home video exclusive, but as time has gone on, more of the dark matches have kind of made their way out, and you can see the whole card uh, as a whole. Just a sidebar, and as somebody who's you know been around the business for so long, do you like the blue cage? Uh, it was kind of you know old, old day style. All I know is the blue cage was awful heavy. <laughs> it looked it. That's why I'm asking. You know, you get the purist that says, "Ah, the bar, blue bar cage. That's not. Uh, that's not a steel cage match. You know, you got to get that chain link fence." But there's something endearing about it. You know, <laughs> there's something yeah. about it that makes you love it to look at it. Well, the funny thing after we set the cage up and the show start and the match was going to start, you know, we were walking Hulk to the ring and Hulk ended up taking the wrong turn and we had to redirect him from the pitcher's mound back to home plate. <laughs> Well, you know what? In 1988, Hulk Hogan could do whatever he wanted, and that music would play, and they would cheer him if he ended up in the bathroom. They would still be cheering him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you decide to uh, to start training in 1992. Uh, you're in the Kowalski School. Uh, this show basically, or this th this podcast, kind of focuses on the years between '93 and early '97. Uh, so in that time in '92, the business is starting to change. Uh, the look of the wrestlers is starting to change. There's more of an emphasis on uh, the work than maybe the size. What did you kind of see about the business in 92, 93, as you were starting to cut your teeth? They were looking for um, more refined uh, basics, uh, work to be cleaner, um, more, you know, athletes from 6'2", 6'3", 220, 240, um, just having a, a real good sense of, you know, the basics and the foundations and um, with where it kind of got away from, you know, the, the larger sizes, but just where guys became more technical with their work. And what about that kind of made you drive yourself uh, a little more? Did you know maybe I have a better shot at this? I'm not, you know, maybe they're not looking for, you know, the, the giant hulking warlord sized monsters anymore. They're looking for guys that could be, and you know, anybody who puts in the work and, and looks great, anybody now can kind of be on their radar. What, what drove you uh, at that point? Just to be in the business or to be someplace in the business? No, I think for me, it was early on in my childhood with where it was one of those things and you, you know, you'll often hear people probably say this the first time I was watching it on TV as a young child, I, it was something that I said to myself, geez, I, I want to do that. And it was just something that I followed, you know, followed through all the way through high school to college to, you know, you know, 
getting to be with Walter and then just uh, continue to pursue the dream. And, you know, things just kind of fell into place for me. Um, you know, I ended up on the radar for WWF at the time and, you know, had the opportunity to do some dojo stuff, house shows, uh, the camps. And, uh, you know, just one of those things with where I, unfortunately I wasn't able to get over the hump, but so many things I was able to take away, you know, better understanding for what they're looking for, for, you know, development of talent. And um, so that was the blessing in disguise. What's Walter's advice to you in the early stages? Walter was trying to just push me as, uh, as hard as he could to get me to go to TV, um, which I, you know, I tried to go to TV as often as I could you know, to get noticed, um, you know, he was very confident with me as an athlete and my ability and my, um, athleticism, um, you know, it's just one of those things, not the right time at the right place, not the right look, you know, you hear rumbles, they want to use it for this and use it for that. And there were some things that popped up, but just never came to fruition. And, you know, and then it just got to a point for me in my career, you know, as I was getting older and, you know, settling down, I really, you know, developed a passion or a niche for teaching. And I just kind of, you know, steered my career in that direction. It's excellent. I mean, you must have soaked it up like a sponge to have such a knack for it. And again, to learn from the best and be able to foster the, the training uh, relationships that you've had. And I, I've watched the, the testimonials of the, the, the gentlemen and the ladies and the people who you've trained. And they just sing such praises for you. But it, it, it starts at Kowalski School. It starts with the fundamentals you learn at the beginning. Now, at that point with him, he's inducted into the Hall of Fame, the WWF Hall of Fame in 1996. How much was he connected to the WWF still in the early stages of your training? Oh, very much so. You know, interesting story. So, I, you know, we'd go to TV with Walter and, um, you know, as, as busy as TV, you know, is or was, uh, Vince would be, you know, in the hallway and he'd be having a conversation with somebody and Vince would stop doing with what he was doing and come over and give Walter five or 10 minutes of his time, which is, you know, a lot of time considering how busy Vince is at TV, but uh, Walter and everybody would just um, stop and, and, you know, give him his respect and saying, you know, shaking his hand, saying hello. Um, so Walter was still very connected all the way to the very end. So is he, is he basically going to, all the Massachusetts shows because he's trying to get his guys involved or is it, are his guys automatic just because they're in Massachusetts? Uh, well, we were sometimes traveling outside of Massachusetts um, and the office knew that when they were dealing with Kowalski's guys, they were going to be well-trained um, not only for, you know, with what they needed to do in the ring, you know, but also behind the scenes, they knew how to dress, they knew how to be professional. They knew how to, to conduct themselves from that standpoint. So, um, that was the shoe and, you know, being a, you know, associated with Walter, um, there was a reputation for all of us because we were representing him as well. So we always needed to make sure that we were doing the right thing, both in and out of the ring. Could you look at a TV show and watch an enhancement match from this era and without even, maybe you forgot one person here or there. Can you see who is trained by Kowalski if you just watch a match? Absolutely. All day long. Yep. Walter's guys, there's a big difference between Walter's guys and not, and I'm not trying to, you know, knock other facilities, but um, just really fine tuned in the little things uh, that create separations from, you know, guys that are on the cusp, but to guys that are just, you know, from its footwork, timing, positioning, um, selling, registering, um, you know, promo work, just, you know, all those things that really make a solid pro we really tried to emphasize at Walters, but also at the chaotic training center as well. So 
when those opportunities presented themselves, the guys were always in the best possible way to get an opportunity to do better. So now at, at that point, 92, 93, you know, some of maybe some of the other alumni of the school, who's still coming around and who's still helping with other talent? Or is it just Walter and nobody else? Uh, at that time in the early 90s, it was, you know, Walter was pretty much the one man show. And, um, you know, I was pretty much going to school three or four times a week. And just over a period of time, you know, as time progressed to 92, 94, and by 94 and 95, he was really starting to give me the reins of the school. And, you know, at that time now I was running class four days a week. And, you know, kind of another funny story, you know, Walter and I would, you know, we'd have our conversations of difference out in the hallway, never in front of the students. And, you know, one of the things that I was trying to implement was some of the new style or things that the office was looking for from a creativity standpoint. And um, so out of respect to him, you know, we always had those conversations in private. And that's the way to do it because you can't, you know, you don't want to show any kind of strife. You don't want to show any kind of yep. any, any little piece like that to, to the guys. Cause that you don't know what kind of breed that's going to take out. You know, you don't know how that's people might not be able to handle that is what I'm trying to say. But um, what was it that you saw about it that you were trying to convey to him during that era? Um, a friend of mine came to the school one time as a guest speaker and his name was, uh, Pat Patterson. And, um, we were, you know, we got done training. And so we were having a group discussion with everybody and, you know, Pat and, and uh, Walter were going back and forth. And, you know, Pat alluded to the fact to Walter that our business, our business is evolving and changing and it will forever be changing as things go along for the better. But, you know, one of the things that they both stressed and agreed upon is that uh, the basics of the business fundamentals and, you know, looking at talent, you know, that won't change. So um, and, you know, the business will continue to change over the next five years as well. But the one thing and I say this all the time now is that you've got to have your house in order. You've got a good you have to have good basics, because if not, um, you know, now you become a liability. Yeah, you got to tell me a little bit about your uh, relationship and friendship with uh, with Pat Patterson. Uh, so obviously getting to meet him and know him, I'm sure, when you were there as part of the, the guy setting up the Brother Love stage. What was Pat kind of like during that era? Because everybody looks at the mid-90s as a down period. And it's weird because it, it's maybe from an attendance point of view, maybe from a marketing point of view. But this time I feel like it's very crucial because of the talent that came up through it. So what did Pat, was Pat still right in Vince's ear and, and maybe conveying to him as well, the things that needed to change? Cause he could see so much of the big picture. Yeah. I just think, you know, there was something really unique and special about him from a visionary standpoint that allowed him to be in a different place from so many others. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always find to be fascinating was, is that his, his dur uh, duration there, um, from the beginning all the way to the end. And, um, and I asked him that question one time. I said, you know, how is it that you're able to just, you know, weather the storm with where, you know, unfortunately you see so many people come and go. And he says, you just have to understand it's, it's Vince's product. And, you know, I'm here to support him. And I give him ideas. Sometimes he likes them. Sometimes he doesn't. Um, I know when to push for more. And I know when to, you know, back off out of respect. And, right. uh, I just, you know, and Vince had, you know, uh, you know, from what I was told, just, you know, a real level of trust, you know, with his ideas and thoughts. 
When it was the two of them, it was magic. I mean, you hear the stories of them with the notebook and, and how far ahead they were, you know, in terms of the stories. Like, that is, to me, that is the beauty of what the, what was WWF television in the 80s. And in the 90s, a little different. So now as you're starting to get matches under your belt, you're starting to get, you know, a little more experience. When do you get the first invite to go to TV as a wrestler now versus a production guy? And do they know you from your days setting up the uh, the sets? Yeah, they knew who I was. And I want to say my first time was, um, if I remember back correctly, it was either with working with Steve, uh, I think Steve Blackman um, was probably my first time at TV. And then there was a bunch of other times and, you know, doing house shows as well, you know, during the course of the summer. Okay, so now here's the one question I have for you. And this pops up, but then, you know, they have the name written wrong and they have this and they have that. I have you in 1995 defeating the Spellbinder Fantasio at a wrestling challenge taping in Lowell, Massachusetts. Can you confirm or deny this uh, this match result? Well, I would deny that <laughs> because it, at that particular show at that time, I was wrestling JBL and I got my family handed to me that night. <laughs> because one site has you as Mike Hollow, the other one has you as Mark Harlow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what was what. But so you're saying you got a, a, uh, a, a perhaps a, a kind of vicious look at an inside of a clothesline, maybe from a JBL. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A four minutes of undaunted um, nonstop action. <laughs> so what? So take me into that. Going back now as a wrestler versus just being a guy who was working on the sets. What is the mindset? What is the preparation? How do you prepare yourself for this in now a different spot? Um, you know, just really trying to think, you know, looking at it from that standpoint of, you know, all the training that I had up to that point and really being able to make that work for me, um, you know, uh, A, being safe in the ring, able to, you know, work with JBL in a manner with where he was going to be happy, that the office was going to be happy and uh, just really try to focus on the little things and, uh, you know, not have any boo-boos during the course of the match and, uh, you know, come out of it in one piece with where everybody's happy and, you know, hopefully that they, um, you know, they recognize that, um, you know, we both did a good job and um, they were happy. And he's another guy, too, that at that point, you know, he's not the guy he would be seven, eight years down the road. This is a different JBL. This is Bradshaw. This is a completely different persona, a guy who had all the size that we're talking about with the, you know, the older sense of the WWF superstar. But he also had trials and tribulations and he had to go through a lot of different changes. Uh, so I'm sure at that point, as much as you're trying to prove yourself, he is as well trying to prove something to management. Exactly. It was funny. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things I remember one time in that match, he went and picked me up and I never, you know, guy never picked me up as fast as he did and slam me down. And it's like, and his speed for being six, seven, 320 pounds. It was just, you know, going from the minor leagues to the major leagues. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine and I can't imagine at the same time <laughs> if you uh, if you get what I'm saying. Yep. Uh, now, how about um, how about Vince? What was your interaction with Vince? Did you did you get to say anything to him? Was he just kind of a, a figurehead there? What was the, the Vince McMahon interaction like? Uh, figurehead, very, you know, very few interactions with Vince. Um, I had more interactions with Shane. Uh, when he was local because he was going to school in BU and he used to work out at my buddy's gym over in um, Somerville. In oh, Maryland. cool. Okay. So, uh, you know, Shane and I, you know, we'd gotten together a few times and hung out. Uh, but Vince, from a work standpoint, it was all business. 
Yeah, I can't imagine, especially during that time, you know. Yeah. This is where the business is starting to, after the new generation years end and then 97, 98 starts to take off. And this is what we were talking about with Brendan, how an independent show, whether it was in Massachusetts or New Jersey or Chicago or wherever, was thousands of people. Yes. You, 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 if you worked a dark match in, in a WWF show, well, guess what? You could be wrestling in almost as front, in front of as many people at an independent show on a Saturday night. When did you, when you saw that change, what was that like for you? Was that helping you also kind of learn the craft of working the bigger crowds? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, you know, to Brendan's point, there were times where I'd wrestle in front of 50 people and, you know, now your in-ring mindset's got to change because you're playing to a, a working in front of a smaller, smaller audience, you know, and then having the luxury and working in front of 20,000 people with where you hear them, but you really don't see them. So it's really, um, you know, you've got to understand with where you're, with what your crowd's doing and with where they're at and really being in tune to, you know, listening to with what they're saying back to you as well as a performer. Um, so that's an important piece. So being able to work on, you know, both sides of the spectrum, you know, it definitely gives you an advantage to understanding um, with where you want to put it, you know, you know, have the crowd in the palm of your hands. When do you think you saw the change with the, the popularity? And was it around 98 when it just absolutely changed and the independent scene blew up? Yeah. Um, the independent scene blew up. And I think, you know, when Hunter and Austin and, you know, that whole time during DX, I mean, right. things, things started to, you know, take a life of their own. Now let's talk about uh, Triple H, Paul Levesque, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Obviously, you know, very well known for coming through uh, Killer Kowalski School. What was his interaction like with the school during that coming up phase? So he comes into the WWF in 94, late 94, into 95. He's in WCW uh, before that, not really making a huge name for himself, but becomes an absolute megastar and one of the top head honchos in the business now. Uh, what was his interaction like with Walter during that new generation era? Uh, again, very, um, very warm, kind, caring, um, you know, always made time when he saw Walter, you know, to stop, you know, to stop doing with what he was doing and just, you know, give him 10 or 15 minutes just to converse back and forth. Um, just really, really respectful. Yeah, I mean, it just it seems like that's what it was breeding, you know, and, 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 and where Walter's era was such a closed business. He really opened it up to the right people, it seems like. Yep, exactly. exactly. Because of the respect. And that was probably a big deal with him. I'm sure you probably have seen instances where there were folks that did not respect it in the same manner and that they didn't last long. Yep. It's, uh, you know, it's the old saying, you reap with what you sow. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, one of the things that we've, you know, we tried to instill upon the students at Kowalski's when I was there with Walter and even to today with where there's only one thing that you have and that's your name. And you, you really got to make sure that you're taking care of your name and you're respectful because, you know, it's such a small industry industry with where somebody knows someone and someone's asking about you or, or so forth. And, um, you know, you just really got to do your best to take care of that because, you know, opportunities are so hard to come by. Yeah, you, uh, you you say on your website, cleaning up bad habits is what you like to do uh, yes. with with the folks that come in, and I love that. That's that's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> yep, and it's so true if you think about it, right? Um, you know, there's so many there's so many bad habits out there today that I come across, and it's like being in a room with the lights off and trying to figure your way with where to go, and um, you know, again going back to Walter with what you know he was able to give me. 
you know, and as you said to me and as Pat had said to me and some others, you know, you're very fortunate to with what you've been able to have access to. So really make sure that you give back and try to help out the guys and girls of the business that are trying to find their way. No, absolutely. And it's kind of funny because you can you can kind of put bad habits in any era. Today, people would probably think it's more about the high spots. Everybody wants to look flashy. Everybody wants to do flips and be so athletic and whatever. But 20 years ago, it's a different thing, right? Everybody, every era, there's there's different bad habits that need to break. What's the biggest bad habit that an incoming want you know up and coming wrestler would have? Two things. One is footwork. Everyone's got happy feet. Everyone everyone wants to pitter patter around the ring, and everyone wants to get to the next situation before living in the moment and letting the people appreciate with what you're doing at that time at that at that point in time in the match, where people can understand your facial expressions and your body language and the message that you're trying to convey over the ring ropes or to the people that are watching you home on TV. Body language being the, the perfect thing to yes. pinpoint because body language, you can tell nerves, you can tell confidence and also in the facials too. When you see somebody having bad body language, what do you do to break them of it? Relax, relax. And um, you know, and it's, it's hard because it takes time and, you know, there's different scenarios, different situations with where, um, you know, we can talk about it, but it's something that our students as performers have to, you know, have to learn to um, kind of find their way. We, you know, we can point it out to them, but it's just, you know, you, you find the right guy or girl to work with and they start to put things into place. And, um, you know, for me, the first time that really clicked to me is when I had an opportunity to work with Tito Santana. You know, before I was going 100 miles an hour, and then I had that that opportunity. And after that night working with him, the light went off in my head because he just allowed to tell a perfect story. The the best. And, and, a, and a guy who was a staple of all those Northeastern shows, and still really to this day, you'll still see Tito pop up every here and there. Uh, was it because he got hit with that flying forearm and it knocked that sense into you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it was... It, you know, it was funny after that match was over and I came back to the dressing room and I said, that was the easiest match I ever had. And I only took four bumps and they were four bumps that made sense. And when, when the referee went to count three, the place went crazy. And I said, geez, I've been doing something wrong all this time. And, and I, that's what I love about the Northeast independent scene. And, and I grew up in New Jersey, so we had a ton of great independent organizations. You know, the NWA had the NWA New Jersey. There was New Jack City Wrestling. You know, there was Jersey All Pro. There was all these great independent organizations. But Massachusetts, New England, Providence, you see all these amazing cards and the, the superstars that came through. And to include the WWF in the late 90s as well, when Jim Cornette was helping get talent onto the shows, yeah. these shows were unbelievable. And I'm yeah. sure Tito wasn't the only one you learned from. Give me a couple of the other, you know, larger name guys you got to work during that era where you did learn from them. Uh, well, at that time, also, we were doing dojo, dojo shows with Freddie Sprotter and uh, Bruce Pritchard through the right. office. And, um, you know, I got to have multiple matches with Double J, which is, a, you know, a great learning experience. Um, some of the other guys, you know, Gangrel that were on those shows, uh, the Hardys. Um, I mean, there was a whole host of talent, but, you know, probably my run with Double J, I probably had an opportunity to work six, seven times with him. Just, a, you know, a true professional. And again, like Tito, 
just really from a psychology standpoint, knowing with where to put where, um, timing wise, and really knowing how to get the most out of the crowd, just really gave me an advantage um, when, you know, when performing, I should say. No, that's uh, obviously not, not, not many better out there than uh, Jeff Jarrett. Obviously, you know, the pedigree he's got as well. He's been doing yeah. it. He was in diapers. Um, before we get to the wrap up here, and we talk about hollow stable again. What is the best piece of advice that you got in your, your days coming up, especially in, like I said, this early nineties, 93, 94 era, what's the best piece of advice you got? Uh, be coachable, be coachable and leave your ego at the door and, um, learn, learn and understand that, um, you're going to hear no a lot, but you've got to persevere and continue to push forward. Um, it was probably the best pieces of advice that I got early on in my career, you know, and that I shared today with talent that I'm working with, you know, closely. Absolutely. Because you probably end up with uh, your head in a, in a, a hand vice, right? If you didn't yeah, listen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Walter had a very unique way in making this point. If you weren't listening well, <laughs> did you ever find yourself on the receiving end? <laughs> no, I was uh, very fortunate. Um, you know, I just, uh, Walter was intimidating. He had this, you know, very gruff. Um, but again, a heart of gold would do anything for you. Very passionate. Um, you know, I couldn't have uh, been ever so fortunate to be able to cross paths with Walter. And, um, you know, you think about, you know, all the things that he did in his career. And I was able to have such a close relationship with him. And if when I say this today often, if it wasn't for him, you know, I wouldn't be talking to you today and interacting with the people that I interact with. Um, and just being able to help is, you know, is a wonderful thing. Yeah, and that's the best. And that's what I said to you when we were speaking the other day. I said, you know, the, the people, how you gravitate to somebody in the wrestling world is unbelievable. You know, yeah. you wouldn't know how it starts, how it ends, but somewhere you get connected and it all makes sense. And, you know, I thank Brendan for, for connecting us. And he told me the second we were done recording, he said, you got to talk to Mike. And I was like, let's, let's set it up. And he, five minutes after set us up uh, together and uh, I'm very thankful to talk to you tonight about it and to get to know you more and learn more about Hollow Stable. So tell the listeners of New Generation Declassified where they can find everything going on with Hollow Stable. You've just launched this, uh, this training academy. Um, please send them to the social media the website, every place we need to see. Yep. Hollow Stable is uh, up and running now with a bunch of new videos from um, some uh, huge WWE stars that are currently working. Um, that gave, you know, give me some great recommendations. And currently I'm working with a new wrestling school, Next Gen uh, Professional Wrestling School in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, we're up and running. Things are going well. Students are coming in. Um, very uh, fortunate and, and thankful that I'm able to work with the group of students that we have there. And uh, so it's a really an exciting time. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll create a new batch of um, superstars going forward, both in the ring and out of the ring as well. And the, the website is hollowsstable.net, and it's H-O-L-L-O-W uh, stable.net. You've got matches from your career on there. You've got the testimonials from the other superstars that you just mentioned. And, I mean, it is, it's a great walk down memory lane of your career, but also if you're contemplating getting into the business, you want to learn – you, you can't go wrong with somebody with the pedigree uh, of Mike, not only under the Killer Kowalski School, but also the chaotic training center, which countless people from this generation, these, these huge yeah. superstars, 
came from chaotic and I, I may have been, I've been hearing about it for seven, eight years doing podcasting, chaotic, chaotic, chaotic. And it is a joy to be able to talk to you about it and relive parts of your career. And again, hopefully it's just the beginning and we hope to talk uh, a lot more going forward. Chad, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to talk with me tonight. I really enjoyed it. Um, hope to be able to do it again. And um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just wrap up here. If you want to follow me on social media, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter. On Instagram, it's at IB Exclusives. My website is IBExclusives.com. You can find all my autograph signing endeavors there. This website for the podcast, TNPTEmpire.com, everything under our TNPT umbrella and more. Uh, so we'll get out of here for tonight. Uh, we will go find ourselves a nice safe space and we will hide from that killer Kowalski claw hold. So for the All-American, Mr. Mike Hollow, this is your old buddy, the Chadster. We will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.